You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. In today's show, you'll be hearing from Rick Rule, the president and CEO of Sprott U.S. Holdings, a frequent guest. Rick, welcome back onto the show. And let's start off by getting your observations. And specifically, I want to know, how does Sprott go about wargaming what we're seeing in the United States? You haven't seen us, um, you haven't spoken to me in the last two months. A lot has happened. Political tensions are at an all-time high, at least for my lifetime. And we've seen some things that I wouldn't have thought we would see in the United States. And uh, we have a Democrat president, a Democrat Senate, and a Democrat House of Representatives. How does Sprout wargame all these things? And what are some of the key takeaways <laughs> the investors listening could uh, could see for 2021? I'm laughing because wargaming is an interesting choice of words, uh, given the last couple of weeks. Um, my belief is that the current level of social and political tension in the United States is really a, a function of politics. When people come to believe that they are entitled to things, either on the right or the left, and they believe that they're entitled through the political process to prevail against other people, the tensions and circumstance that we have in front of us are, I believe, inevitable. Uh, markets function better than governments. Reactions and, and interactions between people need to be consensual and voluntary. Now, markets are very messy, and some people don't believe that they benefit sufficiently from an unmediated, politically unmediated process. Uh, but the truth is that the circumstance that we see in front of us, various warring elites, uh, I think is the sort of inevitable result of politics. I remember once hearing uh, someone say that to understand politics, you need to look at the root of the word, poly from the Latin, of course, for many, but tick was from the English colloquial for small blood-sucking insect. And if you think of the political process as being a war amongst small blood-sucking insects, then the circumstance that we have in front of us is, I think, fair, probably the logical conclusion. Remember, too, I'm a bit older than you. Uh, I guess people looking at both of us don't need to be reminded of that. Uh, but the decade of the 60s and the early part of the decade of the 70s experienced the same so sort uh, of social turmoil in the United States, albeit uh, more socially and less politically oriented. So we aren't in uncharted waters. Um how do we get out of this? I, I, I really have no earthly idea. The idea that for somebody to get ahead, they must necessarily victimize somebody else through the political process doesn't seem like a recipe for peace to me. But my hope is that people develop other forms of communications like independent podcasts. Uh, as for the democratic ascent to Congress, uh, a different warring elite is ahead now, a, a group of politicians uh, representing a different political constituency is in the ascent. Another wonderful quote from H.L. Mencken defines elections as advanced auctions of stolen property. So a different group has emerged as high bid, uh, and that will be interesting. Um, my suspicion is that whoever ascended to office, we would have seen more deficit spending. We would have seen more debt. We would have seen a continuation of artificially suppressed interest rates, 
which is to say that the assent of either party probably would have been good for the precious metals thesis, bad for the country. Would the last two months and what's occurred in America not change Sprott's view on 2021 at all? Would that be fair to say then? Not at all. Uh, I I think that the uh, some disenfranchised Republicans may become more concerned about the economy under Democratic leadership than they otherwise would have been. Uh, and that may lead to some near-term interest in gold, similar to the near-term interest in gold that was expressed um, when Mr. Clinton came into office. But my own belief is in terms of fiscal rectitude, uh, the parties are respectively Tweedledum and Tweedledummer, uh, sort of the same. One more question that deals with politics before we move on to more specific resource investing questions. This whole idea of the Great Reset and the World Economic Forum, they put out, in my opinion, a ridiculous video. And at the beginning of the video, they told me that in 10 years, I will own nothing and I will like it. So uh, what do you think about this Great Reset movement? And are you as an investor doing anything, I would say, to protect yourself against it? Well, as to my own personal responses, yes, I'm doing something, and I'd prefer to keep them to myself, frankly. Uh, the most lethal snake is that which, that which doesn't rattle before he or she strikes, and I'd like to put myself in that uh, category. And I don't think really that the World Economic Forum uh, represents the thinking of the people worldwide. I think it represents the thinking of the big people worldwide. It reminds me of the Club of Rome before your time. Jeremy Rifkin, Jimmy Carter, uh, and that whole range of morons uh, who decided in a Malthusian sense that by the year 2000, the world would have run out of oil, it would have run out of food, all those types of things. The reality was, of course, very different. Uh, as to the World Economic Forum thinking that I would be happier shorn of my possessions, I would suggest that they remember that that's my business, not theirs. And I think that most of the world in fact, feels the same. I saw their list of risks uh, that face us in this decade, uh, and they didn't mention the risk uh, of uh, confiscation of private property, otherwise known as taxation. They didn't mention excess regulation. They didn't mention restrictions of trade. They didn't uh, mention the arms buildup or war. Uh, which is another way of saying that they didn't mention that collective madness known as government, which is, from my point of view, the greatest risk that we all face. I note, too, that when the World Economic Forum makes postings on LinkedIn, which is where I watch them, they would seem to me to be innumerate uh, and totally uh, uninformed with regards to economics. I wouldn't object so much if they renamed themselves the world's leftist narrative forum. Uh, I, I would understand that completely. But I, despite my best efforts to read the stuff, and occasionally they get something right, which gives me hope, um, I, I, I have little regard for that organization. In regards to early stage exploration stocks that you speculate in, you've been doing this for at least four decades. Uh, you hired a geologist such as Brent Cook, Andrew Jackson, and others, and that you ha you hire as brokers, even geologists at Sprott. So I, I was thinking about this and I wanted to ask you, do you think that the geologists, when it comes to early stage exploration, have they made you more money than you would have been able to make on your own? And how often are they accurate or good at giving you suggestions? Remember Pareto's law. 
which suggests that 80% of the positive utility is contributed by 20% of the population. Uh, and that those performance dispersal curves align conformably again. A really good geologist is invaluable. And I would say that one of the few real competitive skills I have relative to other portfolio managers is I am really good at hiring geologists. I've done it for 45 years. The guys you mentioned, uh, Brent Cook, Andrew Jackson, Justin Tolman, I mean, uh, Borden Putnam, uh, what an honor roll of superb geologists. And they have both made me a ton of money uh, and kept me from serious mistakes. Now, it's very important when one hires a geologist or one brings on a consulting geologist or one chooses a geologist that one listen, listens to, to understand that each geologist, each scientist, in fact, each human being has things that they're really good at and things that are not so good at, they're not so good at. Brent Cook, as an example, uh, in tertiary volcanics, in accreted terrain, in basin range geology, uh, is so good He's, imply, he's a, a, a applied empirical processes so long that he's become intuitive. Uh, so it isn't just geological skill. It's the person consuming the information's job to understand the biases and the specific competitive expertise of the geologists. But once you do that, they're absolutely invaluable. My friend Robert Friedland was recently quoted as saying, in our business, the geologist is God. <laughs> and he likes to empower the geologists too. I've heard him he speak does. at your conference. <laughs> he does. He does. Trilogy Metals is a world-class developer in Alaska's Ambler Mining District. The company already possesses 8 billion pounds of high-grade copper, 3 billion pounds of zinc, over 1 million gold equivalent ounces, and over 77 million pounds of cobalt. Trilogy's Arctic project boasts an after-tax net present value of $1.4 billion with a 33% internal rate of return. Trilogy's led by an experienced management team with proven success in discovering and developing projects in Alaska. The company is well capitalized, has no debt, and possesses strong institutional support. Trilogy trades in New York and Toronto under the ticker TMQ. To learn more, go to TrilogyMetals.com. That's TrilogyMetals.com. How, how do you view and how does Robert view artificial intelligence and in exploration? Do you think that this is more of a good narrative for companies to push at this stage, or do you think it's proven effective? Uh, I don't think it has proven effective, but I think it's a wonderful tool in the box. Uh, I think that you are going to have to input a lot more data for AI to access. But what AI really does is it eliminates a bunch of the drudgery uh, involved in geology and allows the geologist to simply think. Too often, if a geologist has a six-week assignment, uh, five of the six weeks is spent reviewing history manually. The idea that AI could speed up that process so that all of that data was collated and organized and systematized on a computer in two or three days so that then the geologist took that information and thought about it, ground-truthed it. Uh, that's the real premise. The idea, as an example, that some supercomputer is going to replace Brent Cook or Andy Jackson or something like that, ain't no way, uh, ain't no way. But the idea that in particular, the younger geologists will be able to organize the processes in AI in a way that reduces 
the amount of time that they have to spend familiarizing themselves with history and data. Uh, that's a very different circumstance. So much the better. The lithium miners have been breaking out recently, Rick. Uh, one lithium miner or developer, Lithium Americas Corp. on the New York Stock Exchange is up an astonishing 200% nearly in the last 30 days. Is this a real breakout for the lithium miners that you think we're going to see sustained? I don't know about the lithium juniors. Uh, I think that demand for lithium is growing fast enough that it continues to outpace finished product supply, which is to say that we don't have a shortage of lithium. Remember that I come out of the geothermal and the oil and gas business where lithium is regarded as a brine, a waste product. <laughs> what we have is a shortage of facilities to convert various raw lithium minerals into finished lithium products. And I think the best opportunities in the lithium space uh, continue to be the very large lithium producers, uh, which have the ability to de-bottleneck productive facilities. Uh, will the juniors continue to do well as a consequence of lithium narrative? Absolutely. But would I put my customers' money there at the expense of the seniors? Absolutely not. That makes sense. What about green to, uh, the green energy movement, especially now that we have a Democrat-controlled federal government? Um, are you putting more weight in this narrative? No. Uh, we've been putting weight into the narrative for about four or five years. Probably the greenest of the green minerals is copper. Uh, it's a boring, a boring topic. People around the narrative want to find some material that nobody's ever lost any money in that only occurs in first world jurisdictions and preferably one that they can't spell. Uh, the money will be made in nickel. It'll be made in copper. It'll be made in cobalt. It'll be made in lithium. It'll be made in much broader markets. Uh, and in particular, if people want to go into the smaller markets, they're going to need to go into some jurisdictions that they're uncomfortable with. Rare earths would be an example. Uh, you know yourself, Bill, they're not very rare. Uh, the reason why there isn't much production outside of China has been that the Chinese have been so efficient that nobody else could afford to look for the stuff and produce it. Now that the Chinese, for very good reason, uh, are imposing higher environmental standards in Western China, their cost to produce rare earths will go up and other parts of the world will be more competitive. But those other parts of the world might be challenging. Uh, they might be pegmatites in, say, Bolivia or Mongolia or Russia or Congo. <laughs> so people who want to play the game need to be informed by the narrative in terms of deciding what they want to play. But they need to divorce themselves from the narrative right after that and pay attention to economics, not narrative. Mm -hmm. And on the idea of narrative, that's what brings a lot of retail speculators into something like rare earths. And I had a seasoned uh, resource investor tell me in the last month, Bill, just stay away from a lot of these niche metals because he said, I've been doing this for decades and almost everybody that I know lost money, not made money. And he said, the key thing you got to look for is for the industrial buyers that they'll come into copper, they'll come into nickel, but they don't come into these uh, niche plays as much. Uh, you think this is wise advice I was given? Really good advice. And let me expand on it. Let's say that you have a little tiny market with some unpronounceable sub, uh, substance, uh, you know, a polysyllabic substance that goes into a cell phone or something like that. The cell phone buyer is more concerned with security of supply 
than he or she is with price. Uh, and so if you have uh, a little tiny penny dreadful, uh, unpronounceable mining or something like that, <clears throat> and then the other side, you have Glencore, and both of them are looking to supply this unpronounceable uh, metal to Mitsubishi, uh, Mitsubishi is going to buy from Glencore. They're not going to buy from unpronounceable ink, irrespective of price or grade, because security of supply is more important to them than anything else. So in these little markets, what you find happening is that the market comes to be dominated by companies where the substance isn't important to the company, but the company is all important to the substance. Yeah, very good advice. Doesn't mean stocks won't go up. So if you are a good journalist and you can understand the impact of a story on a market, there is money to be made as a trader. But don't think of this as speculating or investing. Mm-hmm. Great advice, Rick. A couple thought or a couple questions, I should say, uh, regarding your company, Sprott, as we conclude here. Uh, first one is when you are given a CapEx loan to a developer to build a mine, what do you want to see for a gold developer, let's say, in terms of them hedging their production? What would you require out of them to make you feel secure in the loan that you're issuing them? We typically don't require hedging, which is one of the things that sets us apart from other capital providers. Uh, sometimes that means that the other covenants on the loan, loan to value, <laughs> uh, sequential releases, uh, as an example, are, are somewhat more strict. Uh, but we understand that part of the issuer's cost of capital is the shareholder's belief in the optionality of the equity uh, with regards to the commodity price. So wherever possible, we try and construct a loan intelligently enough that we don't require the producer to hedge. That said- Even when um, it's a four or five year, six year build out and who knows what the commodity will be priced at then? I think there are ways that serve the common shareholder better than a hedging requirement. Uh, for myself, if uh, an issuer's direct, uh, board of directors decides that they want to hedge enough that they can uh, amortize the loan and recoup capital, I personally feel that that's an intelligent circumstance. Unfortunately, being intelligent often penalizes your share price, and we understand pers- we understand perfectly that the sense of optionality is important to the market capitalizations of some of these companies. It's important to note too, Bill, that with regards to ourselves, when we do construction loans, if somebody's borrowing, say, three or $400 million from us over a five-year term, we're not giving them three or $400 million up front. We're giving them perhaps 15% of the loan. Uh, and then as various completion milestones, construction milestones take place, we're, we're releasing more money over time. The same way that you would see a construction loan for a, a skyscraper or a hotel or something like that. Uh, so uh, the risks that you see us run uh, are maybe less than the risks that you had described. But as I say, uh, one of the competitive advantages that Sprott has had is that we typically haven't uh, had to force our borrowers to hedge which is their shareholder's preference. 
The Sprott share price had a nice run from the March lows of last year until about the end of August. It's about 30% off of that high now. So for 2021, as investors look at Sprott Incorporated, is the main catalyst going to be the gold price, which is external to Sprott, or is it going to be something internal to the company? And what would the internal catalyst be that we should look for? We have plenty of nice, um, nice announcements to make, we think which is to say new ways to serve the pro- to to serve the market new ways to serve investors which should increase our assets under management and as a consequence of increasing our assets under management our management revenue should grow i would hope much more quickly than our expenses which is to say that our cash flow which has really been growing should continue to grow one important impetus for us in 2020 was the migration of our principal listing from the Toronto Stock Exchange to the New York Stock Exchange, uh, reflection of the fact that most of our business is denominated in U.S. dollars. Most of our shareholders are uh, American, and most of our investors are American. The other side of that is that the New York Stock Exchange is a much, much, much deeper and more liquid market, and interestingly is underserved in natural resources, while the Toronto market is overserved. This isn't to insult my Canadian counterparts, but rather to say when companies acquire a certain size and stature, uh, shifting to the senior listings, shifting to the New York Stock Exchange is something that they should absolutely uh, look at. Okay, well, thank you, Rick. And the Sprott Symposium for this year, is that gonna be virtual again? Any information you wanna share here? I'm almost certain, 99% certain, that the symposium will be uh, virtual for one reason. The people who put on the symposium are American, and the symposium takes place in Canada, and right now we're not allowed into Canada. (laughs) That's a good point. (laughs) (laughs) That sort of constrains uh, our ability to do uh, a physical symposium. I was terrified, Bill, last year about our ability to put on a virtual symposium. And the product that we delivered exceeded my wildest dreams. And we've had months now to perfect uh, what was already a pretty good process. Uh, And there were some interesting byproducts of doing it virtually. One was that people from 30 different countries who otherwise probably wouldn't have been able to attend a live function were able to be there. The second thing that happened is that speakers that we have wanted to have for a long time, but who couldn't or wouldn't come to Vancouver, were perfectly willing to engage with us virtually. So uh, I I must say, uh, although I love Vancouver and I love taking you and the rest of our guests out in Vancouver Harbor for a harbor cruise, which you can't do virtually, uh, the fact that we've had to migrate the conference to a virtual product has turned out better than I had any reason to expect, Bill. Excellent. Well, I'll put a link to the in the show notes to uh, the Sprout website where you can go if you would like Rick and his team to review your natural resource portfolio. The instructions are also in the show notes. And Rick will be talking to you again in a, in a couple months. So thanks for coming on today's show. Yeah, I really want to reiterate that offer. You know, your your listeners have enjoyed it. I personally, of course, with the assistance of the whole Sprout team, We'll review people's natural resource portfolios, ranking them one to 10, one being best, 10 being worst, and commenting individually where we think our comments have some value. Uh, So please check out uh, the link. We're happy to do it. We learn probably as much as we teach you. So we're looking forward to doing this. Excellent. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Bill. (music) 
Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks concomitant with that if you don't do the work or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too i just started to study up on mining stocks and i just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really you could do really really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited. And they just spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.